Let's pray. Father, thank you. Your blood has washed away our sin. Jesus, thank you. By your blood, we've been made new. Jesus, thank you. We were once your enemies. Now we're seated and welcomed and loved and provided for at your table eternally. Thank you. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of what you've done in us, in and through Jesus. And so today, may he be honored. May he be made much of. May he be glorified. May you set his grace before our eyes in a way like we've never seen it before. That we may endure to the end and be saved. Thank you in the name of Jesus and for the name of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. And I want to say a special thank you to Dr. Edwards for giving the announcements. Man, I am ready to preach after that. Amen. Amen. So um, he may become a permanent fixture during our announcements. That uh, Thank you, Dr. Edwards, so, so much. If you have a copy of a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open that copy to Mark chapter 13 this morning. Mark chapter 13. You say, but I don't have a copy of the Bible with me. That's okay. We have a copy of a Bible for you. You find that in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. Or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible in the hymnal rack beneath you. It's page 1010 in the church Bible this morning. And as you're finding your place there, let me just bring you up to speed to where we've been as we've been working our way through Mark's gospel. It's Jesus living his life on purpose for us. He's come to this earth on purpose, and that is to go to the cross on purpose to win for us eternal salvation for all who trust and believe in him. That's why he comes. And then as he comes to live that life on purpose and die that death on purpose, he calls all of us who trust ourselves to him and believe on him to join him in living that life on purpose. And we're going to see in Mark chapter 13 that there is great purpose, not just to what Jesus has done in the past, but what Jesus is doing now and what Jesus will do in the future. Because there is not a moment of your past or your present or your future that is not accompanied by and empowered by the grace that is promised in this text. Jesus is preparing his guys for what is coming. It's preparing grace. It isn't just past grace for these guys and us. It isn't just present grace for these guys and for us. It is future grace. You see, whatever God is doing in my life today, he is using to prep me for tomorrow. Which means we'll never reach tomorrow without the grace that has been working in us today. 
And Jesus' disciples need to know that because this is Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus will die in less than 72 hours and then he will be buried and then he will raise again from the dead and then he will ascend to the Father and these guys will be left by Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and they need to know something about Jesus that although he has gone from them, he will never leave them. And one day he will come back for them. And so they won't be without his grace at any moment of any day in their future. And that's not just true for them. That is true for us. As we see here in Mark chapter 13, let's see how Jesus prepares his guys for what's coming. Beginning in verse 1. And as Jesus came out of the temple there in Jerusalem, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Then as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, which means Jesus kept saying these things to him while he was still with them. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, because the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, in that moment, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of our God. This is the word of God to his disciples in this day, and this is the word of our God for us here Today, people, would you, let me just ask you this. Would you agree with this statement? People are fascinated with the prospect of what's going to happen in the future. Would you agree with that? I mean, if you grew up in the 80s like I did, then you will remember the cartoon series entitled The Jetsons. Everybody remember that? Okay, The Jetsons. You know, the dog's name, this is all I can remember, was Astro. And, and um, you remember that that was set, actually, that, that was set in the year 2062. And it was, it was set complete with robots and holograms and flying cars. And then there was the Star Trek TV series. I mean, the original, the good one. Starring William Shatner. That series was actually set between the years of 2266 and 2269. 
And then, as a child of 80s, I can't talk about the future without talking about Back to the Future, starring Michael J. Fox. But you know, this infatuation with the future hasn't just been Hollywood. It's been the church, the church as well. If you're a child of the 70s and 80s, you'll remember this film that was so, so popular in evangelical churches entitled Thief in the Night. How many of you have seen this film, Thief in the Night? And then if you miss that because you're too young to remember that, then you're aware that in the 1990s, a series of books was released entitled Left Behind. Somebody just dropped them by my office this week. The entire series. I was going to bring up the entire series for you this morning, but I thought, no, that's too much. That's too much weight for me to carry, all right? So you just get the picture this morning. People are infatuated and obsessed with the future. In fact, it's one of the primary questions that I've been asked as a pastor, even from people who don't attend the church I'm pastoring. When we live down in southern Illinois on the north side of St. Louis, almost every Tuesday, a friend and I would have breakfast at the local pancake house. And many times the restaurant owner would come to the table and sit with us. He wasn't a believer in Jesus. But one of the things he loved to talk about was, what's the end of the world going to be like? And what does the Bible say about when it's going to happen? You see, even people who don't know Jesus or believe on Jesus are curious about what Jesus says regarding the end of the world as we know it. But listen, we see in texts like Mark 13 in the Olivet Discourse here, because all of this takes place on the Mount of Olives, which you'll find the parallel passages to this in Luke chapter 21 and Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And one of the big ideas of this text is that Jesus is not teaching us about the future to satisfy our curiosity. He did not give us the Word of God, to satisfy our curiosity about what's coming, He gave us the Word of God to radically affect, to radically affect our living in light of what's coming. And so this is very practical. It isn't just theoretical. And so when Jesus' disciples begin asking questions about the end of all things, here's the big takeaway Jesus has for it. It's the very last phrase of verse 13. Endure to the end. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. And we need this encouragement because the last days are difficult days. And these are the days that we in 2023 live in. But remember, Christians have been living in the last days since the resurrection of Jesus. And so for 2,000 years, the church has been living in these last days. So take heart. God actually now in 2023 has a track record that he will not abandon his people in the last days. He will sustain his people so that our faith in him will endure to the end. And we need to know that because as the return of Jesus draws closer, following Jesus is not going to get easier, but tougher. That was true for the disciples in their day, and it's true for us right here in our day. And we know that because Jesus is actually using here a three-dimensional teaching motif. Now, let me explain what I mean. Because some of what Jesus says here in this text applies directly to the disciples in the first century. 
But then some of what Jesus says here in this text also by implication applies to us living in the 21st century. And then later on in this chapter, what Jesus is going to say applies to what's coming in the future. And the future is what's taken center stage in the minds of these disciples because Jesus has just rocked their world. He's told them that the temple in Jerusalem is going to come crashing down. And 40 years later, after Jesus makes this prophecy, it happens in 70 A.D., And because everything in the disciples' world revolves around that temple, they cannot begin to conceive of a world without that temple. And so in their minds, they are equating the destruction of the temple with the end of the world as we know it. When Jesus will return in power and great glory to rule and reign on this earth. The disciples are so blown away by what Jesus has just said that when Jesus sits down opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives, Peter and James and John and Andrew pull Jesus aside and ask him two questions. Maybe it went like this. Jesus, do do you get that you've really thrown us for a loop here? Because we've been expecting you to commandeer the temple and to rule and reign from the temple. And now you're prophesying the destruction of the temple? Heads are blown here, Jesus. So so when is this all going to happen? And what will be the signs that the end is near? Come come on, Jesus, you can't just drop a bomb on us and leave us hanging, inquiring minds want to know. Now, it's crazy that we're living 2,000 years after this goes down and half a world away from where this goes down, but people today are still asking the same two questions. When will the world as we know it end, and what are the signs that the end is near? And although Jesus answers the second question first, we're going to begin with Jesus' answer to question number one because it's the shorter answer. Notice here when Jesus answers their first question that he doesn't say, okay, guys, pull out your phones and pull up your Google calendar and here, get ready. I'm going to give you the date that it's all going to end. No, Jesus doesn't answer their question until all the way down in verse 32. Where Jesus says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor even me the Son, but only the Father. So you guys aren't going to know when it's coming or when I'm coming back. But you know, there have been lots of people down through the years who claim to know. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, it seems like I'm talking a lot about the 70s and 80s this morning, but if, well, that's my childhood, that, right? That's my world. I mean, um, but if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, you'll remember a name, Hal Lindsey. He was a household name in evangelical circles. He wrote a, wrote a boatload of books in which he gave evidence for why he believed that Jesus was going to return in the 80s. Listen, I get that the 80s are the greatest decade ever. But Jesus did not return in the 80s. Then there was radio broadcaster Harold Camping. Ever heard of Harold Camping? 
Camping first predicted that Jesus would return on or about September 6, 1994. Now, I was younger when I heard that, and thankfully, I got married before that date so that at least I could experience marriage before Jesus came back. But September 6, 1994 came and went, and when Jesus did not return, Harold Camping revised his date to September 29th of last year, of, of that year, and when that didn't happen, he revised it again to October 2nd, and after swinging and missing three times, he struck out and he quit, attempting to predict the date of Jesus' return. And then there was Jack Van Impey, who expected Jesus to return between 2001 and 2012. These men claim to know what Jesus says we cannot know because no one knows the day or the hour of his return. And Jesus is teaching us that it isn't about knowing when it's all going to end. It's about enduring all the way to the end. That's Jesus' answer to question number two. He's saying, okay, guys, guys, it's like us as parents with our kids when they think they're kind of fooling us by asking the same question twice just in a different way. Jesus says, I'm on to you here, guys. You're asking the same question twice. First you want a date, and then you want a sign that will alert you to when that date is drawing near. But you know what? I'll play along. But I won't just give you signs that you're living in the last days. I'll give you instructions on how to endure the last days. And the first is that you must see that no one leads you astray. Verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. You know why? Because many will come in my name saying, I am he. I am the second coming of the Messiah. And maybe we're thinking, and by the way, we should be thinking this. Is this really a danger for these guys who followed Jesus around for three years? They spent so much time with Jesus. They listened to him. They watched him. They walked with him. Could they really be duped and fooled into following a faux Messiah? A false Savior? Well, for one of these disciples who followed Jesus around for, 12, or for three years... And saw the lame walk again, and the blind see again, and the dead live again. One of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, would fall and fall hard. And maybe you're thinking, you know, okay, PK, but, but Jesus is talking about falling prey to a real man who claims to be the second coming of Christ. So could that really happen in their day, and could it really happen still today? Well, now is when I give you permission to get your phone out and to Google the name Jim Jones and drinking the Kool-Aid. Google the name David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Now, I get that our first reaction may be, well, you know, I would never fall for that. I would never worship a mere man and believe on him as the second coming of Messiah. Listen carefully. And I hope this comes across as weighty as I intended. None of us is beyond being led astray. None of us. Kids I grew up with in church youth group have fallen. Bible college classmates of mine have fallen. 
pastor friends of mine have fallen. And what precipitated their fall? They began giving little pieces of their heart to false messiahs and faux saviors. They began looking for love in all the wrong places and searching for satisfaction in all the wrong things. And soon then they began to exchange the truth of God for the lie of the enemy. And so, a pastor leaves his wife and four daughters for another man. Another pastor leaves his church. He becomes so disillusioned with pastoring his large church that he leaves that church, and then he leaves his wife, and then eventually he leaves Jesus altogether. Friends, please, please hear me. None of us, including me, is beyond or above giving our heart to a false Savior. None of us. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. How do you endure to the end in the last days? You guard your heart against falling in love with a counterfeit Savior. You see, when my brother worked as a teller at a credit union, he learned to be able to instantly identify counterfeit money. You know how? By constantly handling the real thing. I say to you, Stay with the real thing. Handle the real thing. Saturate your heart with God's truth. Get into God's word. Stay engaged with God's people. Make this time and this place on Sundays a priority every week where we make much of God's name so that you won't fall prey to foe saviors and so that you won't be alarmed. Verse 7. Because in the last days, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Dictators are going to be flexing. And nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And Russia will invade Ukraine. And it's going to feel like the earth is teetering on its axis. Because there will be earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and famines and covid And you're going to feel vulnerable and susceptible. But do not be alarmed because God is still on his throne. And maybe you're thinking, uh, that's, we agree with that, PK. We had three amens to that. But that's not what Jesus says here. Okay, I'll give you that. But it is what Jesus implies here. Because he says in verse 7 that these are the things that must take place. Not might take place, not could take place, not likely will take place. These are the things that must take place. And so there is a real purpose to those 
these things because there is someone superintending over these things. It's God using these things to move this world toward its final chapter that he has already written. And so in the midst of all these things, do not be alarmed. God's got this. And he says that even when you see these things, the end is not yet. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. And when Jesus says this, and I read this, it takes me back to the fall of 1996 when I read about birth pains. Because that's when I discovered what it felt like to be pregnant. Okay, it took you a minute to get that. I'm all, in all seriousness, let me explain. These days, let me explain. Since I'm a man and I learned what it meant or at least felt like to be pregnant, let me explain. We were expecting our first child. And one of the first sessions in Lamaze class, anybody remember Lamaze class? I don't even know if they still do Lamaze class or not. But for you young people, here's what Lamaze class is. It's, it's essentially what, it, it's a class that teaches you what to expect when you're expecting and to prep you for the big day, birthday, right? And the teacher in that first class period asks, okay, listen, we want you men to be able to identify with your woman when she's nine months pregnant. And so we have a pregnancy belly here for any man who's woman enough to wear it. And before she could get the words out of her mouth, my wife raises her hand and says, my man is woman enough. You did say that. <laughs> and so there I was strapping on this 25-pound pregnancy belly that's simultaneously pulling me forward while pressing on my bladder. It was super uncomfortable, both physically as well as emotionally. I'm not sure I've recovered yet. <laughs> and in spite of that, wearing that thing around for the entire night... I don't know what birth pains feel like because thankfully there was no contraction simulator on that pregnancy belly. But you moms out there this morning, you get Jesus' illustration here. You know those contractions all the way back to the Braxton Hicks before birthday ever arrives. You know that although those birth pains are painful, they're beneficial because they're essential to your baby's birth. And that's why John Piper has said, if you're in a hospital and you hear a woman across the hall groan or scream, it makes all the difference in how you feel if you know you're in the maternity ward and not the oncology unit. Why? Pain is pain, isn't it? No. Some pain leads to death. And some pain leads to life. And Jesus is saying that the wars and the rumors of wars and kingdoms rising against kingdoms and nation against nations and the natural disasters of famines and earthquakes and tsunamis, all of those are birth pains. They're not death pains. And so one day the birth pains are going to produce something beneficial and eternal. There is coming a new heavens and a new earth. So endure to the end. And to endure to the end, you've got to trust 
the process that gets us to the end. Because it's God's process. There's a purpose to the pain that's happening in the world around you. As well as the pain that's happening in you and to you. And that's why Jesus says to his guys in verse 9, be on your guard. Be on your guard because, guys, persecution is coming. You will be delivered over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. But trust me, it's all a part of God's good plan. It's how he's going to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And for these men, that's precisely what is going to happen to them. We don't get very far into the book of Acts before these guys are living what Jesus is saying. Some of them will be arrested. Some of them will be beaten. Some of them will even die for their faith in Jesus. But rather than persecution stopping the gospel or killing the gospel, it will spread the gospel across the globe because as the early church father Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And maybe we're thinking, oh, PK, that's so good. That's so good. But what about when persecution begins knocking on our door? It's coming. Somewhere, somehow, some way, someday. For the believer in Jesus, persecution isn't just a possibility, it's a certainty. And Jesus wants us to know that and be prepared for that. Because what He's doing in your life today will prepare you for the persecution that's coming tomorrow. Because first, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Will be persecuted. Not might be. Not could be. Not likely will be. Will be. Your faith in Jesus may not cost you your life here in America yet. But it may cost you your career. It may cost you some friends. It may even cost you your family. And for some of you who are sitting in this room this morning, that isn't just some far-off possibility. For some of you, that's your daily reality. Some of you are divorced because you chose to follow Jesus. Some of you have lost friends Because they were offended when you talked to them about Jesus. Some of you right here, right now, are living smack dab in the middle of verses 12 and 13. Not because you've been martyred by your family, but because you've been disowned by your family. Because you follow Jesus. Can I just say to you something as your pastor? Can I say to you, thank you for your faithfulness under fire? Thank you for not letting your guard down. You are, God God is using you to encourage and to grow my faith in Jesus. That's what I said this past Monday at Janine Gower's memorial service. Pastors need people. 
I need you. I need to see you enduring to the end. I need to see in your life evidence that the Jesus I preach, he is not a sham. And so many of you are proving that. And your endurance and your perseverance. You have believed what Jesus has said in John 16 verse 33. When he says, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Take heart because I have overcome the world. Notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say, someday I will win. He says, when I came, I did win. Because there is, outside the city of Jerusalem, an empty tomb that once held the body of Jesus. Listen, friends. Jesus has overcome the world. So in this world, you, have tri- you will have tribulation. But take heart. There's an empty tomb to prove my Savior lives. And so he says, guys, when the heat is on and your back's against the wall and you're standing trial for your faith in me, do not panic. Verse 11, do not be anxious because I won't abandon you when you need me most. So when you don't know what to say or how to say it, my spirit will give you the words to say. And that happens. Just as Jesus says. And we see that I think illustrated best in one of the apostles named Peter. Because you remember Peter, right? The guy who's always ready and willing to open his mouth. And on the night Jesus is betrayed and arrested and is undergoing a trial at the chief priest's courtyard. Across that courtyard, watching from a distance, is Peter. He's within eyeshot of Jesus. And that's when a young servant girl looks at Peter and points at him and says, I know you. I've seen you with Jesus. You belong to Jesus. And over the course of that night, before the rooster crows the next morning, Peter three different times will deny ever knowing Jesus, the final time cursing the name of Jesus. It's Peter under fire, doing his own thing, answering in his own words and his own way, and he fails miserably. But then, just two months later, we see a different Peter. After Jesus has ascended to heaven, Peter stands before a group of, a, of thousands of Jews, and he preaches Jesus unashamedly and boldly and courageously and that day in response to his message 3,000 Jews repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and are baptized going public with their faith in Jesus. What changed panicking Peter into preaching Peter? Acts chapters 1 and 2 tell us that it was the Holy Spirit who came upon Peter and empowered and enabled Peter. And you're thinking maybe to yourself, well, PK, you know, that's so awesome. That's so cool. What a great illustration. But that's really not practical to me. I mean, I I never, I'm not Peter. I don't preach. I've never stood trial for being a Christian. Okay, okay, I hear you. But the application 
of the Spirit giving us the words to say isn't limited to the courtroom. Young people, young people, it's true for you in the classroom. When your faith is being challenged and you're tempted to shut up about Jesus rather than speak up for Jesus. It's true in the break room when a coworker asks you about what you did last weekend and you're tempted to just skip the part about going to church. Parents, it's true for you in the dining room when your 20-something son or daughter is laying out the reasons they no longer claim the name of Jesus. And we're tempted to withdraw and to be quiet and to crawl into our little cocoon to attempt to preserve ourselves. Listen, there are so many times that we're tempted to fear what people will think of us or do to us or say about us rather than testify to the grace and glory of the one who died for us. In those scary moments, God's Spirit will not abandon us. He will enlighten us and empower us. It's Jesus' promise to us in John 14, verse 26, where he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All. And so in those scary situations, the Spirit will give you the words to say and Jesus will give you the strength to say those words by overwhelming your panic with his peace because in the very next verse, in verse 27 of John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Spirit will give the words to say. Jesus will give the strength and the peace to say them. He will overwhelm our panic with his peace. So take heart in these last days. They are difficult days, but God will not abandon you. He will sustain you so that your faith in him will endure to the end and you will be saved. That's Jesus' big takeaway for his disciples and for us. Endure to the end and be saved. Persevere in the faith all the way to the finish line of your life, whether it's when you die and go to see Jesus or whether it's when Jesus comes back for you. You keep on keeping on. You keep on believing and enduring all the way to the end because that's what Christians do. They endure to the end. They don't stop believing. Now I want to be clear here about what Jesus says and about what I'm saying You are not a Christian because you endure to the end. You endure to the end because you are a Christian. So Christian, endure. Don't stop short of the finish line. Run through that finish line. Pedal to the metal. Stay on course and don't be led astray. Keep your focus on Jesus and don't get distracted by all the noise around you. Keep your guard up and your head up even when following Jesus gets really hard and you feel like quitting. 
Always remember that you are strong, but you are not strong in yourself. You're strong in the strength of someone else, someone bigger than you and stronger than you, someone who has finished the race by overcoming death for you. Remember Jesus. Do you have him? Do you have him? Do you have someone stronger than you bigger than you, to empower you, to finish well. You see, 1 John 5 verse 12 says, whoever has the Son has life. But whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So do you have Jesus? And maybe you're like, well, why do I need Jesus? Here's why you need Jesus. You will never endure to the end without Jesus. You will never see eternal life. You'll never cross the finish line into the presence, the eternal presence of Jesus without him. Because Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, Romans 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Not life. But there's good news. There's good news for sinners Because Isaiah 53 verse 6 says that although all of us like sheep have gone astray and all of us have turned to our own way rebelling against God, here comes Jesus. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquities and the sins of us all. Only someone bigger than you and stronger than you, only the perfectly righteous Son of God could ever do that for you and win you eternal entrance into the presence of God. Will you trust Him? Will you believe on Him? It's not about how hard you run or how hard you work. It's about how hard Jesus has run and the race He has won and what He has done for you. That's why the Bible says that salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest any of us should boast so. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Eternal life will be yours. And you will finish strong. Because when you have Jesus, And trust in Jesus. The same grace that has saved you will sustain you. You run because of grace. And you run with grace that empowers you to finish strong by grace. So church at Bethel, let's do Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. Follow Jesus. And by his grace and for his glory, you will endure to the end and be saved forever by Jesus. Amen. Father, may you take your truth and apply it as you wish.
to accomplish all of your purpose in the hearts of your people, in my heart, and in the hearts of those who do not know you through Jesus. Open the eyes of their hearts that they may come to Jesus and trust in Jesus. And for those Christians who are tempted to quit because these last days are so tough, may they keep on keeping on by your spirit. May they endure to the end and be saved. And me too. In Jesus' name, amen.